Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, buongiorno. I'm just back from a week in Italy. I'm some, now I'm demonstrating my tremendous fluency. Uh, all right, so uh, I'm a little bit muddled, a little bit jet lagged. So in order to, to help me with that, we've scheduled a show of three extremely thorny and complicated topics, uh, ones that uh, are prickly and t- touch upon great sensitivities. Um, in our second segment today, we will talk about the pending election in Alabama with Annie Linsky from the Boston Globe. She's not technically located in Alabama, but she's doing a great job covering it anyway. Uh, and then at the end, we'll talk to April Glazer about net neutrality. She writes for Slate. Um, at the beginning here, though, we're going to talk uh, to Emily Yaffe, journalist and contributing editor at The Atlantic. Uh, Emily wrote why the uh, hashtag MeToo moment should be ready for a backlash in Politico uh, this weekend. So let me just say uh, in a prefatory manner anyway that. You know, we, I think we knew that 2018 was going to be a weird year and a fraught year. But we were sort of picturing, I think, I don't know, maybe we'd be at war with North Korea. Muslims would be, you know, being placed in stockades. You know, I mean, we had a list of ideas about ways in which 2018 was going to be a very um, hard year to live through. Or 2017, for that matter. Uh, and both 2017 and 2018 have been, well, one of them has been and one of them will be, all those things. But I don't think we pictured the moment that we're in right now towards here at the end of 2017. I don't think we imagined that there would be this cascade uh, of um, allegations and, and in some cases more than allegations uh, of sexual misconduct by prominent men. Um, the New York Times has a list of 40 The thud you just heard was uh, Mario Batali, although I guess he would be added to the extra 18 uh, beyond the New York Times is 40. And and just to run your eye down that list of 40, and then there's sort of 18 more who haven't really kind of lived out the full consequences uh, of what's going to happen to them. You just see all these names, and there were some that I missed and some I'd forgotten. I mean, it's happened so fast. Um, So uh, that's part of what Emily's piece is about. Uh, She's going to help us kind of understand where we are at this moment, assuming that anybody can understand where we are at this moment. Emily Yaffe, welcome back to our show. So nice to be here. And yes, you um, had uh, Italian food, but don't look to Mario Batali to be feeding you anytime soon. Right. I was in a town called Luca, and he actually does have, like, I guess, sort of a little burgery gastro pub uh, in Luca. So, I mean, Mario is everywhere. Uh, but, uh, but he's not a good example setter in other ways, apparently. So you start this piece with the idea that, in a way, um, what's happened on college campuses is kind of a leading edge of this, that there may be 18 months to two years or, or whatever ahead of us. Uh, And some of this comes from guidelines promulgated by the Obama administration. Give us a sense of this. Well, my concern is that this Me Too movement, which uh, is amazing and I think has the potential to be really transformative, my concern is I'm seeing um, already threads of what happened on campuses starting in 2011 with the Obama administration, um, a very worthy, very ambitious goal of ending 
sexual assault on college campuses. What happened is uh, a number of things that we do not want to spill over into uh, the larger society. The definition of what sexual misconduct was expanded so broadly that it essentially uh, encompassed anything that could be of a sexual nature, and that includes flirtation, teasing, uh, jokes. You could get in trouble for that. Um, the way of meeting out punishments was so lacking in any fairness or due process that there are now 200 lawsuits filed by um, young men who've been accused against their universities saying they've uh, been mistreated. And just an atmosphere of uh, a generalized fear that everyone is a potential predator and that uh, young men and women have to look at each other warily uh, was promulgated. We don't want that to be the result in larger society. Right. And one of the things you said is a paper by, I believe, four feminist law professors saying, all right, it's out of control. The standard of proof is too low. Uh, the standard uh, of what constitutes a punishable offense is is, is too flimsy. Uh, we've got a, a situation here on campuses that uh, it's 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 not what we intended. We're getting more than we bargained for. Now, one there's just sort of maybe two broad ways of thinking about this, Emily. One of them is to say, you know what, uh, with this current moment here in 2017, we should try to figure it out in real time and try to do it right. The other way to talk about it is this is chaotic and confusing. None of these cases is a carbon copy of any of the other cases. It's going to be hard to create hard standards. Um, it's just going to have to play out. Uh, the There'll be some there'll be some damage maybe to people who maybe more damage than some people uh, deserve. They'll get some people will get less damage than maybe they deserve. Some of it will get sorted out, as you just suggested in the college campuses, in the courts. You know, if Garrison Keillor thinks he got a really raw deal here, he could always sue Minnesota Public Radio for wrongful termination. Um, so why is is one of those ideas yeah, doing it the best way you can right now? Um, is that better than kind of just living through the chaos and hoping that it all sorts itself out? Well, this is a chaotic system. I mean that in the kind of semi-scientific way. You know, this it's, a, it's an emergent system. We didn't expect it. We don't know where it's going to go, and in some ways it's uncontrollable. The, the other part of it is, you know, organizations are making decisions, and decisions are kind of... Uh, we're establishing some ground rules that I think are quite concerning, particularly the leading edge is public radio and who knew, and Colin, you may be the last <laughs> man left on the air. Um, several hosts have been told just before they were going on, on the air, apparently, Tom Ashbrook, uh, Leonard Lopate, these are veteran uh, broadcasters. There have been accusations against you. You are suspended. We're not telling you exactly what you're accused of, but we'll be investigating and we'll get back to you. I am not an employment uh, lawyer, but that that really has echoes of what happened on campus. Young men systematically were told, a complaint has been made against you. We're not going to tell you the particulars. Defend yourself. Um, I don't think we should do it that way. Uh, I, you know, if if someone has accusations, he should at least 
be given the courtesy of being told what they are. And I'm not sure in every case, you know, you have to be banished before uh, there are findings. If someone seems like he, he, you know, it's a Harvey Weinstein, he's uh, credibly accused of criminal acts, okay. But um, I'm worried that we're creating a standard, you know, who's the next person who gets sent off to the gulag, which is, I don't think, in the end, going to be helpful to creating women and men are going to have to work together to create more equitable workplaces and say, you know what, this is not okay, and you misunderstood this, and and let's have people of goodwill trying to make something better. Yeah, I think also, Emily, we in journalism, as we report this stuff, we're also kind of learning as we go, and we're using some standards that I think are different than the ones we typically held ourselves to in the past. Some of this is because there's kind of an affirmative push to 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 mostly believe women, almost maybe almost almost all the time to believe women. But I often do. Well, I'm going to play a clip for you. This is actually the end of what was otherwise a terrific interview between Mary Louise Kelly of NPR and and the CEO of NPR, whose name I've never learned how to pronounce, which is why I haven't advanced further. Um, but so this is uh, apropos of Michael Oreskes, the news uh, executive who was one of the early um, transgressors uh, here at NPR. But they're talking right here at the end. Uh, and I guess kind of live on the air, maybe, uh, about the latest um, twist, I guess you might say, in the case. Here they go. Let me push you again then on what did push you to act and put Mike on leave as of last night and then ask for his resignation this morning. The Washington Post published his story. He was put on leave within a couple of hours. Was that because new information came to light, came to you? Yes. But you can't elaborate on what that is. I cannot. A new case? New New case. Internal? Yes. Current employee? Uh, yes. May I ask the severity of the allegation? Uh, again, I hate... I, I know, but you've talked about a range. I understand, but I'm going to be lambasted for uh, any specificity here. And again, I want to get to the confidentiality of the complaint. I would say on this, on the on the range of... You know, Harvey Weinstein being on one extreme um, and um, the other internal issue that uh, the complaint that we, that you referred to earlier. Conversation that conversation, made the woman feel uncomfortable. Yes. Mm. I would say it was clearly in that range. In the uncomfortable conversation yes. range. Yes. So – Emily, I don't know. I've been a reporter a long time. And it used to be people would be fired and I would just be told it's a personnel matter. That's all we're going to say about it. Here you have them talking about a guy who, you know, I mean, he may well be very, very culpable of all kinds of stuff. But it's like they're having a personnel hearing in real right. time on the air in front of people. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so part of this, what are the rules? We don't know. That's all been thrown uh, up in the air. Uh you know, things that used to be private are played out now in in public. You know, we've had some of these Leonard Lopate and Tom Ashbrook have kind of plaintively said to uh, various news organizations, I don't know what the charges are. I'm sure I'll be cleared. So there, you know, it, it's playing out in the media uh, things that used to be private. Now you could argue the privacy is what kept this system going because men could private oh for uh spend more time with my family and um abuses were never exposed so i don't have the answer but i agree with you 
that um, in some degree, uh, the process is the punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, when your reputation is besmirched, even if you're eventually cleared, there's always an asterisk by you. Yeah, Garrison Keillor's obit is different now. You know, I mean, not that I think he's going to die any second, but his obit will read differently Absolutely. as a result of this. And so, you know, one thing that we could say, and I apologize, we only have about two and a half minutes left. We're in fun drive, fun drive right now. But, you know, John Rawls had this experiment, create a system that you would be willing to live within you, without knowing what your place in the system would be. So we could do this with this, you know, imagine that you didn't know whether you were going to be a man or a woman, an accuser or a accusee, and, and then th- Think about what would be a fair system that you could live with no matter what your place was in it. That might be an interesting thing to apply to this. And we obviously we don't have time for that. But are there I mean, obviously, one thing I think we could agree is that neither side should be automatically disbelieved. Are there some other things that you would layer onto that? I really think we need to have processes and procedures that everyone sees being as fair as possible to all sides. When, you know, Al Franken, there was going to be a process, the Senate Ethics Committee, and, you know, that hearing may have had 15 women there um, making sworn testimony, women, we, you know, whose names we didn't know before, saying, look, here's the things this guy did. And then in the end, if he resigned, you know, we'd all have felt, too bad, but that's the right thing because this was overwhelming. Right now we're left with him saying, actually, I gave a wrong impression if you thought I was uh, admitting to these acts. I'm not, um, but I'm resigning anyway. So did he do it? Did he not? That, I, I don't think that's the way we want to go forward. And I mean, I think there's an I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, but I, I like that idea anyway, to start having processes that you follow each time. The problem is that since these all don't occur in the same environment, you won't always have the same process. Right. Well, there's not going to be a national standard. You know, workplaces uh, have to figure it out. But to say the process is the accusation, the accusation goes public and he is banished. That's not a good process. Right. Um, well, Emily, we have to stop now because we have a, a pledge break. Also, there's some people from Human Resources right outside my <laughs> studio door. I have to talk to them right now. But um, You didn't do anything terrible. I think this gone. is just about insurance uh, selection, my health insurance or something. I'm sure that's what it is. People should read Emily's piece, Emley Yaffe's piece in Politico, Why the Me Too movement, uh, movement Should Be Ready for a Backlash. Do support this station when these nice people come on and ask you to support the station. All right, we are back. Oh, welcome to the scramble. Uh, I am back from vacation, uh, and uh, so bear with me. Uh, but things are going okay so far, and I know that our next guest will totally carry me anyway. Annie Linsky, uh, chief national correspondent for the Boston Globe. Tomorrow, uh, voters will go to the polls in Alabama. Some of them will vote for Roy Moore. Some of them will vote for Doug Jones. Uh, many of them, especially if they are African Americans, will be told that they have the wrong photo IDs and won't, will not vote. Um, all of that makes for a very uncertain situation. So, Annie Linsky, uh, first of all, welcome back to our show. 
Hi. Hi. Good to be here. So you've been there. You've been talking to to voters. You've been talking to women in particular. Let's sort of start with that issue. Um, This is one of these things where polling is a little tricky. Uh, You've got a kind of fluky election to begin with, off-year December special election. There aren't many of those. And then you've got sort of a question about whether people are going to tell the truth about what they're going to do. So give us your take on that. Yeah, I think um, this Alabama special election is, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I've done two trips down to Alabama in the last um, month, and a lot of my um, colleagues in Washington have just sort of been camped out there full time. Um, and it is, it is tricky. I mean, you know, there, there are two new polls out on the, in the race today. You know, one has, um, you know, Republican Roy Moore up by 10. The other one has Democrat Doug Jones up by 10. So it's, it's something that... You know, um, people are having a really hard, pollsters are having a really hard time getting their heads around, and I and I think rightfully so. I mean, you know, these polls really rely on the turnout model that you attach to them, and I, I just think nobody knows. You know, like nobody knows um, because there who is going to come out to vote because there just really hasn't been an election quite like this um, in Alabama and really a long time um so um so it, it's it's one of those things where everybody keeps asking me you know what do you think is going to happen what do you think is going to happen and i just i mean all i can say is my crystal ball i put it i took it into the shop after 2016 and i haven't gotten it back yet well i mean i i think that's absolutely right and one thing that we know about polling models is they tend to map onto and derive some of their predictive ability from comparable situations in the past. Mm-hmm. And there just aren't right. any comparable situations in the past. So it's unbelievably fluky. So there are things that we do know, things that are observable, things that are happening. To me, one of the more remarkable things that's happened over the last few days is that Richard Shelby, the other senator yeah. from Alabama, a hardline conservative, uh, has taken a very, very strong position against Roy Moore, who would be mm-hmm. his fellow Republican uh, in the Senate. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was very deliberate. Um, over the weekend on the Sunday morning talk shows, um, Shelby, you know, gave a number of interviews where he was quite explicit that he did not, he voted absentee and that he did not vote for Roy Moore. Um, he said that he wrote in a Republican name, so he, he wasn't, you know, endorsing um, the Democrat Doug Jones in his case, but he was really giving Republicans in the state permission to um, abandon Roy Moore. And, you know, he's been saying that for a little while. It was striking that on the eve of the election, right after Donald Trump was down in Pensacola, Florida, just, you know, 14 miles from the Alabama border, um, you know, giving a sort of a rowdy endorsement for, um, for, for Judge Moore, that Shelby, who is you know, in, in Alabama, there's such a sense of, like, we're not going to listen to the outsiders. It's a, it's a very insular place. You know, even when I was down there for an event with Steve Bannon, the people that I was talking to were saying, oh, we don't care about this Steve Bannon. We don't care what he has to say. We're here for Roy Moore. Um, and so I think that the significance of Shelby, who is not an outsider, you know, he is a Republican in Alabama saying, look, I'm not going to vote for this guy. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that does mean something. Um, and, but you've also had another, you've had um, Jeff Sessions, the, the um, former Al- Alabama senator whose seat um, is up right now. The reason for the special election is because Jeff Sessions went on to become 
attorney general. And um, he has also said that he um, believes the women who have made these these allegations against um, against Judge Moore. And you, you even had Ivanka Trump. You know, the president's daughter saying there is a special place in hell for men who um, are, are who, who prey on children. So there have been Republicans, um, but the the ones who are particularly important in Alabama um, would be Shelby, a senator from there, and also Sessions, who still you know re- retain re- remains a popular figure in the state. So one thing that we can look at in terms of analogy, a little bit anyway, would be what happened during the 2016 presidential cycle when this audio of Donald Trump surfaced, seeing stuff that would be would have been a deal breaker in an awful lot of national or even statewide elections in prior years. But I think now one of the things that, that I believe happened there was that although there were many people who were appalled by that and a number of them may have switched their votes, they, they, there were others who who although appalled, wouldn't switch their votes to Hillary Clinton because they had other reasons for not liking her. And I'm wondering whether you think Doug Jones has any of that problem right now. Like, Imagine that you're a Republican or an independent voter who leans red. Uh, This stuff with the young girls is giving you some problems. Uh, But is there some kind of threshold effect about when you'll flip over to Doug Jones? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because in many ways— because you you know Doug Jones is not like Hillary Clinton you know he he hasn't been um uh, he's not one of these you know perennial candidates he's not particularly well defined um in the state the way Hillary Clinton had this these you know really high negatives um that were driven up i mean there there's been nobody the Roy Moore campaign hasn't hasn't had a lot of time to spend attacking Doug Jones you know, they've been going after, you know, national figures as if, like, you know, some of the national figures are on the ballot against him. They've even sort of invoked Hillary Clinton to say, oh, a vote for Doug Jones is like voting for Hillary Clinton. But the fact is, it's not. I mean, Doug Jones is, um, you know, you talk to Democrats down there and they say, you know, he is the strongest candidate that their party has nominated in, um, in years. And um, so they were very happy with him for a few reasons. One is he's fairly moderate um, on some issues. You know, he's he's pro Second Amendment. Um, he talks about his gun case and his love for hunting. So that that's a little more in sync with Alabama values than perhaps you know somebody from Massachusetts or Connecticut. Um, he he's got a record, a really strong record on crime. And you've seen um, Trump initially out of the gate was attacking Doug Jones as somebody who was you know, going to be soft on crime. But the pushback on that has been so so hard that you've really seen Trump shift. And he talks less about crime. You know, when I was down in Pensacola with the president, he didn't mention crime at all when he was attacking Doug Jones. And that's because Doug Jones was a federal prosecutor. And he had really two very seminal cases that were hugely important in Alabama. Um, one is there was an abortion clinic that was bombed um, while he was federal, a federal prosecutor. And he launched the investigation there that led to a man who'd done a number of bombings around the South, including the um, Atlanta Olympics. And so, you know, this investigation led to a terrorist being locked up who, who had been, you know, wreaking havoc in, in the region. Um, and the, the second one, which, you know, he talks about even more, is um, Doug Jones 
you know, was was part of a team that went back um, and and unearthed this cold case, the 1963 bombing of a Baptist church in Birmingham, where four little girls, four little black girls, were killed. And um, there had been a conviction in that case, um, but but everybody had always known there were more, and there were others, and there were other people responsible for that bombing who got away with it. And Doug Jones was the one who said, okay, we're going to go back, we're going to take actually a third look at this case. And, um, you know, I talked to people down in Birmingham about him who said that he doggedly went after it, and he ended up, you know, with two two convictions of two Ku Klux Klan members um, who, who had been living out their lives ha- having not been punished at all for this crime. And they're now in jail. And Doug Jones made you know his reputation on, on that case. And he's been contrasting the way he treated um, 14-year-old girls and honor and, and you know, found you know, revenge for them, you know, found you know, vengeance for them, uh, justice for them, I should say, uh, versus how how Roy Moore has um, treated um, a 14 year old girl who he has been accused of um, of sexually molesting, so so there's there's a strong contrast there, and you just don't have the baggage of say a Hillary Clinton, who you know unfairly had to de- contend with sexism and also had been a sort of a punching bag for years in the Republican Party and was already defined. Right. So, you know, obviously the sexual misconduct stuff uh, about Roy Moore is the bright, shiny object in this ra- right. in this campaign. But I think race is the other driver here. And everything that you just said obviously would make Doug Jones a figure of somewhat heroic proportions uh, in the black community. But, I mean, as I alluded to at the beginning here, uh, Alabama kind of famously has photo ID laws, and it's like a laboratory there on how to abuse them. The centers where you can get them suddenly close up uh, in high black registration counties. Um, So I think one of the things that makes this such a question mark in terms of ultimate outcome is the black vote could be tremendously significant. Roy Moore, in addition to his sexual misconduct stuff, has just, you know, antediluvian attitudes about race and slavery. Some of his statements about it have just been chilling. uh, But nobody knows how much of a black vote there's going to be. Although, as you can tell us, some prominent black politicians from outside Alabama have tried to tip the scales a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you've had, um, you know, the, the three um, big names that come to mind in terms of black politicians who are sort of coming in uh, for um, for Doug Jones are, you know, I mean, you, you had um, Deval Patrick, uh, the Massachusetts former governor, who is a fantastic campaigner. I mean, he's probably in, in his generation one of the best campaigners, and he has been... Um, silent, really, through all of 2016. He, he was not a factor, um, you know, even this year in terms of opposing Trump or opposing Sessions, even somebody who he has a long history with, um, Deval Patrick has been silent. So it was quite interesting to me to see him sort of break his silence and go down um, this weekend to Alabama and do events in black churches. You know, he is really, you know, um, you know, to, to see him on the stump is really something. I mean, he does, he is quite talented at, at that, um, but he's been, you know, staying away from it um, in his sort of new life as a, as a sort of corporate, um, in his new corporate job. Um, but then you also have Cory Booker, the um, a New Jersey senator who's a 2020 shortlister for the Democrats, who's down there, you know, doing the same thing. And then finally, Barack Obama is going to be um, recording a robocall 
and um, also trying to get get the black get get black voters excited about going out to vote. And you know, there have been a lot of news stories suggesting that there is a sort of um, you know lull in the enthusiasm among African American voters. You know, and I, I'm not sure. It, it, it's hard to know what to make of those. I know one of my colleagues who's at the Washington Post just did a great piece, um, you know, sort of looking at that very issue and found that a lot of black voters were saying, we're going to vote for Doug Jones, but we just don't think he's going to win. And I think the important part of that statement um, is really that I'm going to vote for Doug Jones part, because, um, you know, even though there is a sense that he's going to lose, and that is sort of the conventional wisdom, you know, both in Alabama and in Washington, um, they're still saying we're going to go vote. Um, it's not that it's not enough fatalism, at least among the the um, people that he and my colleague interviewed. So, so it like I it's it's a tricky it's a tricky question. The other part that's been difficult is Obama is so unpopular in Alabama, so unpopular that the Doug Jones campaign has really decided to wait until the, the very end to bring them in, so that you would to, to have people like Deval Patrick, who's quite associated with. With Obama, and then Obama, who's you know, obviously associated with Obama, you know, it's been, they've been very late to to bring them in on purpose, out of a fear of of turning off the white voters that they also need in order to win this race. Annie Linsky, it's been so great to talk to you, Chief National Correspondent for the Boston Globe. We don't have time for this, but one thing I want to talk about uh, in the weeks ahead uh, is what happened on Facebook. Uh, Some of these ads uh, started popping up again over the last few days on specific Facebook feeds. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg has really got this problem fixed yet, uh, despite his pledge to do so. But we'll talk about that on some other day. Uh, Tomorrow we'll know the answers tomorrow night. Annie, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about net neutrality, which is which would be a gigantic issue if there weren't 18 other gigantic issues uh, occupying our time right now. But it's still a gigantic issue. We're going to talk about it. Uh, and, well, that's all. I don't know what he's fighting for, but it ain't me for sure. Screaming If the U.S. Senate refused to seat Roy Moore, could he do his whole six-year term as takeout? Asking for a friend. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish says Aquaman has always been a perfect gentleman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Clayton Powell. On tomorrow's show, let's have a Christmas right out of Charles Dickens. But that means we have to talk about child labor. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, here in our final segment, um, really, this would be an even more gigantic story, as I said, if there weren't so many other gigantic stories. So the Roy Moore vote will be on Tuesday. Uh, on Thursday, um, the entire fate of the Internet will be hanging in the balance. And we kind of already know uh, what will probably happen uh, as the FCC considers ending the policy of net neutrality. But let's find out uh, what this means with April Glazer, who writes about technology for Slate magazine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, well, I, maybe it's worth just spending 60 seconds sketching out what net neutrality means for people who haven't thought a lot about this. So, so give us that thumbnail. Sure. Net neutrality is the concept that all of the content that travels over an Internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon or whoever you subscribe to to get your Internet should be treated equally. So that means that, for instance, you know, 
you can't connect to Facebook faster if you use Comcast, but then you connect to Netflix faster if you use AT&T. It rather says that, you know, all of the content that you reach can be reached equally. And, and that matters because, you know, small startups um, really need that kind of equality for anyone to be able to see their content. It also uh, blocks or it also prohibits the idea of paid prioritization. So uh, that's the idea that, uh, you know, one company like Facebook or Google could pay to reach users faster. Now, that means that other companies that maybe can't afford those high price points won't be able to do it. And it kind of messes up the equality of the Internet. Right. It's one of the things that allowed, for example, uh, circa 2004, 5, and 6, the rise of bloggers. You know, blogs uh, started by relative non-entities who were just good at what they did uh, could become very popular because they traveled along the Internet highway at the same speed as as pretty much everything else. So the um, FCC is now contemplating on Thursday undoing all this. um, April, it seems like a, a solution without a problem. Um, why would there be any pressing need to undo a, a system like net neutrality? Well, the only people who this will really benefit are, are the big telecoms, right? And so, you know, Comcast and Verizon and AT&T are delighted that this is going through. But you're right in that it's not a problem because in 2015, uh, the FCC under President Obama actually passed rules that would prohibit Internet providers from slowing down traffic to some websites or speeding up traffic to other websites or blocking websites altogether. Uh, now, Pi is saying that uh, he wants to move forward with a deregulatory agenda that would really only benefit internet service providers. Um, the, the, the issue there is that uh, internet service providers you know, stand to make a lot of money doing this. So they've probably been pushing for this for a long time. You know, they'll be able to charge, for instance, a subscriber, you know, whatever money, $50, $100 a month to get the internet, and then they'll be able to charge websites to reach the subscribers. So it's kind of just good for the internet service providers and really no one else, people who use the internet or people who publish on the internet. I should say that the Pi of whom you speak is FCC Chair Ajit Pai. I'm not sure whether we've established yes, uh, that or you. not. But um, so, yeah, so all those things are true, but it also uh, offers opportunities for the telecoms to become even more vertically integrated monopolies. Let's imagine that Comcast mm-hmm. decides, well, we'd like to have kind of a streaming movie service. Um, well, they could allow it in the fast lane and keep Netflix in a slower lane uh, and, and ultimately uh, create, create a tremendous amount of economic privilege for their, their new enterprise. That's right. You know, or, or you know, AT&T could say, uh, we don't want you to use FaceTime, which they've actually tried to do before in the past, you know, and so we're going to slow down that and you have to use our app instead. Um, and and that type of uh, that type of kind of, you know, pulling the arm of, of other companies or, or of subscribers so that way you use their product is, is really, you know, not a healthy business practice. It's incredibly anti-competitive. And uh, and the truth is, is that under Pi's rules, under Chairman Pi's rules that would rescind the net neutrality order, All the uh, ISPs have to do is say that they reserve the right to treat traffic as they please. All they need to do is disclose that they're going to be acting in discriminatory, non-neutral ways, and then they'll be able to do whatever they want. Now, in a way, we're reaping the whirlwind of another set of bad policies, right, which was that these telecoms were allowed to become effective monopolies, if not uh, total monopolies, mm-hmm. uh, monopolies with whom it's extraordinarily difficult uh, to compete. Is there any possible relief? I mean, one possible backlash against this would be to get uh, more and more interested in some other kind of, uh, of fiber-driven uh, ISP. But that's very tough to do, given the stranglehold they have. 
Sure, you know, ostensibly in a healthier marketplace, if people were not happy with the way one ISP was censoring or throttling or slowing down their traffic uh, and how they access the internet, then somebody could vote with their wallet and, and go to another one. But the truth is, is that the majority of Americans have no more than one or two uh, at most options for high-speed broadband internet to their home or to their businesses. And that type of market concentration makes these types of um, regulations that kind of rein in the power of these companies really, really important. Now, there uh, there are solutions that uh, I would love to see more of, like, you know, uh, municipal-owned internet uh, mm -hmm. service providers, like we've seen in Chattanooga, for example, or community-owned or more local-owned ones. But, uh, but the FCC's proposal is going to further entrench the power of these large incumbents in a way that's going to make it much harder for these smaller businesses to enter the market. Right. And even in, in those cases that you've cited, or, or at least parallels to those cases that you've cited, and we've had a little movement here in Connecticut through our Consumer yes. Council uh, to try to do uh, some kind of big gig service statewide here. But what often happens with these municipal services is they wind up in court because these the, their competitors, the Comcast, AT&Ts, and Verizons, have a lot of very well-paid lawyers they can use to, turn, to break down these efforts. Yes, and in, in many uh, states or, or municipalities across the country, you know, about 10 years ago or more, uh, Comcast went around with lobbying groups to actually make it illegal for uh, for community broadband or for, uh, you know, community high-speed internet or municipal-owned internet, uh, you know, services to pop up in cities, saying that uh, saying that it, it, it would be anti-competitive with them or somehow created language that would bar them from popping up. And so when these, when these instances do try or when, you know, municipalities do try to that if they're an internet service provider. Often Comcast will try to take them to court because they inserted this kind of uh, terrible language many, many years ago while nobody was looking to uh, block any competition. You know, April, one of the things the Internet is typically very good at is organizing people, people who are disparate, who are far flung all over the place. You can get a lot of people together mm -hmm. uh, and try to create some kind of crowd movement against something. Uh, I can't imagine anything that would be more keyed to the self-interest of people who use the Internet a lot than opposing net neutrality. How come uh, no populist movement has been able to shut down this effort? Well, it's not for lack of trying, right? Now, the FCC has had, you know, some something close to 23 million comments flooded system uh, since, uh, you know, in, 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 in kind of people trying to mostly oppose this order. And that comment process, which I'm sure we'll talk about or we could talk about later, has had a lot of serious flaws and irregularities. But people have been really trying to speak out against this. And Pi and the FCC uh, under Trump has, has largely ignored them. What you bring up, though, about the centrality of the Internet to all processes of social change and political organizing is really, really key here. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to build any kind of movement, uh, you know, to fight for any sort of political change or to organize about what's happening locally if people aren't able to get that information out there and also connect to each other in a way that they can rely upon. And having an open internet is key to doing that. I will say that in 2005, an example of a, a a really terrible net neutrality violation uh, happened in Canada with the telecom TELUS, where they were actually found to be blocking a website that was used by union organizers uh, that was organizing a strike against the telecom. 
right? And say they were actually blocking access to that website. Um, and so, you know, we can imagine all kinds of nefarious ways that Comcast can can limit or or change the way we access information to ways that may benefit them. April, at the beginning, I said this seems like a solution without a problem. Uh, I mean, it's a it, it, the problem uh, afflicts only these huge telecom companies that that want to be able to make more money, but they wouldn't seem to be very attractive to anybody else. Yet through this commenting process, the FCC was hearing from citizens who said, "Oh yeah, let's get rid of this terrible net neutrality." Now, who could these citizens possibly be? Why would they want to do something like that? Well, the majority of the comments that came in to uh, to support Pi's uh, removal or repeal, rather, of the net neutrality rules, um, we're learning uh, many of them were were fake or uh, were used with posted with stolen identities or were done with bots. Um, the overwhelming majority of the uh, organic comments, something like way over 90 percent of those, uh, in other words, bot comments that did not come from bots or that were actually written by people who were voicing their concern to the commission about how this policy will affect them, were from real people. So uh, we're seeing that the opposition uh, to this uh, seems to be, um, you know, a, actually a false groundswell of grassroots support. We've seen, you know, over 400,000 comments come from, from Russian email addresses, which is particularly suspect in this political climate now. Uh, We've seen comments from dead people that were impossibly posted posthumously where people have said there's no way they could have posted these comments. And those comments were uh, were all in favor, except for, uh, I think, 25 of the international comments of repealing the net neutrality rules. But again, the organic comments, the comments from Americans who are actually concerned are for keeping the regulations and keeping the open Internet protections intact. April, we've only got about a minute left. Um, obviously, when these uh, changes go through, and they probably will go through on Thursday, we already essentially know the vote. It's not as though Brave New World will start the next day, right? There, this will be gradual. And a lot of people in my listening area are served by Comcast. Uh, probably not much will happen until September 2018 on Comcast, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, not the next day, but the next month. Okay, I, I think it's really important that, you know, uh, to, to remember the, the, the time span here. So after the vote happens, it'll take a couple weeks for, uh, you know, it'll show up to show up in the federal register. And then, you know, about a month or so after that, before the rules are enacted. And that means by the end of January 2018, ISPs will be able to kind of do as they please, as long as they let you know that they're going to do as they please. Now, Comcast is barred because of uh its merger agreement when Comcast merged with NBC Universal, uh, they had uh, they had some conditions that were set on that merger that said that they are not allowed to act in non-neutral ways until September 2018. So if you're a Comcast subscriber, um, there is uh, there is some br- the brakes will be pumped a little bit until then, and maybe yeah. things will get tied up. In a little court. bit of breathing room, yeah. All right. So April Glazer from Slate, great to talk to you. Um, nice people are coming to ask you to support. What we do, if this kind of conversation, this kind of show is something that you like, now's a good time to do it. We get a little bit of credit when you support us during our time period. So think about that and listen carefully and then think about calling or pledging online.